This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director. This is Abraham Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science. I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. I'm Wyatt Blevins, and I'm a Democracy Fellow here at JMU Civic. And I am a Public Policy Administration major, as well as a Political Science major with a minor in History. In this episode, we speak with Major Bob Kennedy, a 2007 graduate of James Madison University, majoring in philosophy. Major Kennedy's first duty assignment was in 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, Texas, where he served as a scout platoon leader and executive officer in the 4th Squadron, 9th Cavalry Regiment. While there, he deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, serving as both platoon leader and executive officer. After completing the Maneuver Captain's Career Course and U.S. Army Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, he returned to Fort Hood and was assigned to the 504th Battlefield Surveillance Brigade. Major Kennedy then deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom as a brigade plans officer. Upon return from Afghanistan, Major Kennedy took command of Apache Troop 2nd Squadron 38th Cavalry Regiment. He deployed with his troop to Kosovo under the NATO K-4 mission. While in Kosovo, he relinquished his command of Apache Troop to his JMU classmate, L.H. Jin, and then took command of Headquarters and Headquarters Troop 2nd Squadron 38th Cavalry Regiment. Major Kennedy was recently assigned to the Army G357, where he assesses Army readiness. We invite you to join the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military. And this next question actually comes from Colonel Swain. He wants to know, did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? Uh, So first, thanks for the opportunity for for me to share uh, my experiences. Um, I wanted to serve and lead soldiers from a very young age. Uh, I didn't come from a military family at all, so it it came as a complete shock to my family. But it went back to sixth grade. I was studying the American Revolution and just was just amazed by how, you know, leaders can can lead guys with really no chance of winning at the time that they thought and how they can motivate, you know, those uh, those men to to go fight against, you know, somebody that, that was the most powerful military in the world. And I, I just wanted to, to do something like that. Um, so I knew nothing about the army. I was super naive and idealistic. Uh, so no, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into when I joined the ROTC department at JMU. But what I can say is that JMU ROTC prepared me for my career in the army. And I, I couldn't imagine a better place to learn and grow, starting the, the leadership and culture I think at JMU is the foundation, um, and the ROTC cadre kind of modeled what right looks like and what a military leader should be, and they gave us opportunities to train and develop um, to grow into military leaders ourselves, and truly went above and beyond there, and I don't know that I really appreciated how well we were prepared until I was, you know, a a military leader myself, and uh, I look back and say, wow, that was 
that was really pretty, pretty incredible. Bob, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how JMU's ROTC program defined leadership um, and, and what that, what leadership looks like to you. I think the cornerstone of it would be leading by example, um, leading from the front and setting, setting that, uh, setting that tone where you're, you are going to do what's right and you're going to make people, or I shouldn't say make people, I guess it, it's, it's doing what's right, leading from the front. And then by doing so, people will want to follow you and, and your, your soldiers, your, your subordinates are going to want to do well for you. And that's leadership, right? Because it, it's easy to say, do this because, right? Or I want you to do, to do something. I'm going to order you to do something. Well, somebody's going to follow because you're the boss, right? But that's not leadership. That's just telling people what to do, and, and anybody can do that. But leadership is making people want to do something that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. And they want to do it because they, they, want, to, they want to do right by, you know, that leader or the, or the mission, and they, they, feel, they feel a desire to do it, even though it might not be something that they really want to do. And, and that's, I think, that's leadership, and I think that's, that's what the program really offered. Bob, where were you on September 11th, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you? So on September 11th, 2001, I was a junior in high school, and uh, I was, was in class, and, you know, it was kind of a class just like any other, and uh, somebody wheeled a TV into the room. Um, you could remember back, you know, when TVs were giant and humongous uh, on, those, on those big carts. And uh, we held the TV into the classroom and we just sat there and watched in silence with it was students and teachers and people were just huddled around and we were just in silence and disbelief. Um, and, and that's kind of that's kind of how the day went. Um, it changed everything, I, I think, you know, to say how it changed. I, I don't think there's a way you can just say, well, it changed this or it changed that. Uh, it fundamentally altered my life. And I don't think there's any other way to describe that. Uh, it certainly solidified my desire to serve. Like I said um, previously, I, I always wanted to. I think I probably would have followed through with that anyway, had 9-11 not happened. But there's no question that it solidified that, that decision and that desire and, and put me on the track that I'm on today. Can you share your experiences serving in the global war on terror global overseas contingency operations and ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how those experiences impacted who you are today. Sure. So, so as I kind of thought about this, there's really three, three big things that, that uh, I could kind of take away and how, it, how, how the experiences impacted me. The, the first is kind of brotherhood and, and family. Right, the, you know, the, those I served with, and even those I didn't, you know, some of them it could sometimes be closer than family. The second kind of perspective that the U.S. way and the Western way isn't necessarily the right way. And then the third, I had a, an opportunity to to serve in Kosovo, which is not obviously Iraq, Afghanistan, but it's kind of a what what could have been. And I'll kind of go into each of them in a little bit more detail. So you know, in terms of 
brother, you know, brotherhood uh, when I was in Iraq in 2009. I was very fortunate that 2009 Iraq was very quiet. You know, it was kind of um, more or less. They kind of said, "Hey, at that time, we thought might U.S. might be leaving, so kind of gave a gave the call to say, "Hey, kind of hands off, hands off the U.S. troops, more or less, right? More or less." And uh, it was a pretty quiet tour, but I was on a small patrol base, uh, patrol base Doria, uh, less than a hundred guys. Uh, we had no showers, no toilets. We burned our own trash, lived in tents, and we were closer than family while we were there, right? Because of that, because it's when you're when you're living like that, it's you got no choice uh, but to become very very close. And uh, those guys that that I was with. Um, still keep in touch with, you know, a good, a good number of them. And we're, we're extremely close. So you kind of, I was able to see kind of how small that brotherhood was, uh, you know, fast forward a few years later, uh, I was in Afghanistan and kind of just talking, I was a, you know, brigade staff officer. I never really did any, uh, anything much other than kind of plan in, in Afghanistan. But I was talking to a guy and he said, Hey, where were you in Iraq? And, I said, oh, well, I was, you know, south of Kirkuk. And he said, oh, I, was, I was south of Kirkuk as well. And, you know, where were you? I said, oh, well, it's a place called Patrol Base Doria. And you can see him get choked up. He said, Staff Sergeant Doria saved my life. Um, they, were, they were there together. And actually, he was on the medevac bird. He was wounded as well. Uh, that, that Staff Sergeant Doria, who the patrol base was named after, was on. And... You know, we didn't know each other all that all that well. Like we, we didn't serve in Iraq together, and we didn't have a, a very, you know, stressful kind of formative bond in Afghanistan when we were there. But we had that we had that shared shared bond and shared experience, and that's it's a, I guess, very pointed example. But you can have that, you know, with with guys that maybe I, you know you didn't deploy with or whatever, and you just have that bond. So. The, the brotherhood and the family bond is, is very is very real, and that's something I've taken with me. Next is kind of that, that perspective. Like I said, that the, the U.S. way isn't necessarily the right way. Uh, a lot of what I what I did as a platoon leader um, in, in Iraq was engagements with local Iraqi leaders. And uh, again, an example of this, we, we'd go out and we'd conduct what was called sweat assessments. So that was... You go and you look at a town and, and you'd assess the sewage, the water, electricity, academics, and trash. And over the years, they added other other letters to that acronym that, that you would assess. But uh, one of the things that, that stuck with me was there's always, I mean, there was trash everywhere. And I, I talked to this one particular leader and said, well, what if we can get some trash cleanup? And, and try to, you know, clean up the city a little bit, clean up the town. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, why would we need, why would we need that? It's a big desert. They had no problem with trash. We thought we did. That was a Western problem, right? The, the, the trash was there. And the, the thing that I took away is that we were trying to solve problems that weren't there necessarily sometimes. And... You know, the don't don't put in a, a Western solution to an Iraqi problem. Uh, it was kind of the way we took it. So there's that, that that right way, the wrong way, and then the Iraqi way. And you know, at the end of the day, and you could you could put Iraqi way, Afghani way. You could you could you know insert insert the country 
right? It doesn't have to be uh, just specific uh, to Iraq, Afghanistan. But the Iraqi solution, even if it's imperfect, is better than the American solution. And, and you ask, okay, well, why is that the case? And the case is, or the, and the answer is, because it will last, because it's theirs. We're not forcing it down anybody's throat. They're figuring it out on their own. And I think that's something that, that's really kind of important to take away. Let me pause you there. Does that apply to governance as well? Um, the example that you used um, about the trash being sort of a Western solution, when it comes to creating governance in, in, in countries that are not Western countries, is it possible for us, through your experiences, to go through and, and, and create the type of political system that maybe we grew up with here in America and expect that it will grow roots in these other countries? You know, that's, it's a, that's a tough, tough question. And I think you, you can't make a universal uh, statement because every country is different, right? Um, what we can say is that, you know, for, for our system of government, there's a lot of blood behind it. And that, that's, uh, I guess it, it's harder. And, and we had to fight for that and figure it out ourselves. And just if you, you look, over the course of history, we're still figuring out how to govern ourselves. Um, and I'd like to think that we're doing it pretty well, uh, but we have a long way to go. Uh, so to, to just say, we're going to take, we're going to take an existing system and we're going to impose it. I, I don't think that's probably the, the right way to go. I guess, I guess different governments are going to be more successful, but I think you got to be mindful of, of the fact that you, you can't just apply a one-size-fits-all solution and say, hey, yeah, the goal is democracy, but democracy takes a lot. Um, democracy takes an educated populace. The po democracy takes an engaged populace. And you got to learn from that. If, if, if you come from oppression for generations and generations, you don't have that education, you don't have that background, uh, you don't have that, that knowledge of the system of government, and you don't even know what it looks like. So it, it's not something that can just be inserted and, and considered a success. But I, I will throw out there uh, if we you know could. So the, the one interesting thing was uh, I had the opportunity to go to Kosovo, and Kosovo was was a thing. You know, I like to think I you know keep keep fairly fairly on top of things. But when we got orders to go, I was like, wait, Kosovo. We were there in like 1999. Why are we still there? And uh, it's it's what winning looks like, um, quite frankly. So it was we were there, but we were there with 17 nations as part of a NATO K4 mission. And you know that that government to to kind of answer your question a little bit, um, it had the advantage of it is it is a European nation, albeit poor European nation. Uh, and, and what you call it is, is debatable, right? So the U.S. recognizes Kosovo as a country, but, uh, you know, uh, NATO does not. Uh, yes, NATO, NATO, Kosovo is Kosovo because it's, it's, it's a conflicted area between Serbia and Albania and all that kind of thing, right? So uh, we're there for peace support and really at that point kind of just supporting um, their, their government. 
government um, to make sure that the government can thrive and succeed and they can figure it out on their own. So, I mean, we could we could set the conditions, but the, the country needs to figure it out for themselves. What would you like the public to appreciate about the United States' military response to the September 11th, 2001 attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narratives? So I, I thought about this a lot and and, and kind of how to, how to say it, but I think what I would like the public to appreciate the most is nuance. So 15-second sound bites are very easy. You know, a, a quick bumper sticker, super easy. Um, everybody wants troops to be home. Nobody more so than the troops themselves, right? Um, but there's consequences, good and bad, for whichever decision, you know, uh, we make as a country. And I think what I would like for the public to, to know or to appreciate uh, is, is to be educated and informed um, and having a, a knowledge-based reason, a fact-based reason for saying either troops should stay, troops should go, uh, troops should deploy somewhere, uh, and we should engage in the world or we should withdraw from the world. And we should have a healthy and lively and vigorous debate about that in, in the country. Um, you know, overwhelming, you know, thank yous and all that kind of stuff is, is all great, you know, sure. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people in a lot of different career fields that make a lot of sacrifices and a lot of contributions to the country. Um, but I think what, what would be the, the best thing that the public can do is get informed and say, no, we shouldn't do this because of X, Y, and Z reason. And then say, well, but counterpoint, if we don't do it, this is what's going to happen. But know what those second and third order effects are going to be. Because then, then we, we get into a situation where we can think about the future and think about the costs the cost and the benefits. Um, so when we do send troops into harm's way, we do it with conviction. And we do it with a reason. And we do it with a clearly defined goal. From your perspective, Bob, what have been the consequences of the United States military operations in response to the September 11th terrorist attacks for domestic and U.S. foreign policy? Uh, so I'm going to dodge the domestic uh, part of it. <laughs> um, I, I will say, you know, consequences, war, wars are expensive. Uh, particularly when they last 20 years. And uh, that's not a value judgment on if it's worth it or if it's not worth it. Um, don't want to go there. Um, but for for 20 years, we focused on the current war, um, you know, being, you know, the, war, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we assumed risk with respect to other parts of the world. Um, particularly with our, you know, our near peer adversaries that you, you know, that, that you can read about. Um, and, and then we talk about in kind of current events today as we're starting to turn back towards the rest of the world. And, uh, the army's got a huge, a huge budget. The military has a huge budget, but it's not an unlimited budget. And we have to make hard choices. 
And, you know, I, um, given those hard choices, we invested in the war of today and we, to an extent, neglected the, the threats of tomorrow. And we find ourselves now playing catch up in, in trying to prepare ourselves for that future conflict. Um, and, you know, I think we, we need to realize that those, those threats are real. Those threats are, are out there. Um, and funding towards that, um, we, we need to, we need to get there. Um, so that's definitely a consequence where we, we're not able to modernize, uh, modernize the military to the extent that we wanted to because of our focus, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now as we, as we draw down, uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're able to turn that focus and we really have to, to re-energize that, that focus in terms of modernizing our military, uh, into, into the future. As we engage in this conversation um, in September 2021, the Taliban has retaken Afghanistan following the United States' withdrawal. There are ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. So as someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan in Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? You know, it goes back to uh, kind of previously, as I said, we need to have informed informed debate and, and uh, healthy dialogue in, in the country. And we need to have clear strategic and military objectives before uh, we take any, any action, I, I would hope. Um, that way, again, when we go, we know what we're going for uh, and we can do it clearly and, and decisively. Um, but other than that, uh, there's a lot of people suffering right now. There's a lot of people suffering and heart goes out to, to them. And, um, you know, just hopefully, hopefully we can do everything in our power, uh, both, both the government and you know, private citizens to, to try to take, take away some of that, some of that pain. Democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. We thank you for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an, is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? There, there are a lot of ways to serve in, in the country. And, you know, whenever somebody says, you know, to me, thank you, it's, I always say, hey, that, that's great, thank you. Um, but there are a lot of people that serve, you know, my mom's a nurse, my brother's in education. Um, you know, you don't, you don't hear thank a teacher all that often, you know, but they're, they're bringing up, they're bringing up our kids, uh, you know, nurse, doctors, nurses, taking care of you. Like those, those are all very important, very important professions as well. So I think that's, that's something to, to take, to take with you is that there are a lot of ways to serve. Military is not for everybody. Um, you know, and a lot of people do, you know, one, one tour in the military and they say, hey, it's not for me. And that's great. Like, thanks. Appreciate your service and, and like move on and, and find something else and keep, you know, keep contributing somewhere, but you can find ways to make an impact. You can find ways to be engaged. Um, and even if, if you don't want to do that, that that's, that's all fine. But kind of, as I mentioned earlier, just be educated, have the informed debate, um, disagree with things, but disagree for a reason, 
know why you want or are for and against something. Uh, because if, if that happens, then we can get, we can get past shouting at each other. You can gain an understanding. And even if you don't agree with, with the other side, that's okay. You're not supposed to, but at least you can understand it. Uh, and I think, you know, a little bit of more of shared understanding would go a long way uh, towards strengthening our democracy. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.